You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 25, Naked and Underfed. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time in March of 1796. Napoleon was on his way to Nice, in southern France, where he would take command of the Army of Italy. This was an appointment he had dreamed of for months, and the political connections he made after Vendémiaire, combined with a shift in French strategy, had finally opened the door. Napoleon's orders from the Directory were to carry out a planned offensive he himself had drafted during his time at the Topographical Bureau, an all-out push into northern Italy, relying on speed and exploiting the region's rough terrain. However, as Bonaparte and his men would soon discover, the Directors were not truly convinced of his mission. They did not agree with Bonaparte's assertion that the whole war of the First Coalition could be won in Italy. They still saw the Southern Front as a sideshow to the main affair in Germany. That begs the question, why did they adopt Napoleon's plan if they didn't accept the strategic logic which underpinned it? Well, they had a few reasons of their own to support an offensive into Italy. First off, the war in Germany had entered a period of stalemate. The directors believed an offensive in Italy might draw coalition resources away from Germany, thus enabling a French breakthrough. Even if Napoleon was defeated, the aggressive campaign he planned to fight might create a big enough stir and cause enough casualties to serve as a temporary distraction. The second reason was financial. The conquests of 1794 and 5 had proved quite lucrative. When the revolutionary armies were on the offensive, in enemy territory, they could largely support themselves by foraging, capturing enemy supplies, and expropriating from the local elite. The most successful campaigns even produced a tidy surplus. But whenever the Republican armies stayed on French soil, the revolutionary government footed the bill for their clothing, food, and equipment or tried to, anyway. Between corruption and scarcity, there was never enough to go around. General Jean-Baptiste Jourdan, who commanded one of the main French armies in Germany, explained the supply situation during this period. Quote, For two years, I commanded 150,000 men, and never received more than 10,000 rations a day. I was forced to procure the rest from the countryside in which we lived. End quote. Even when they were in enemy territory, 
like a herd of livestock, a big Republican army could deplete its grazing grounds, giving it an imperative to migrate to new lands, so to speak, by conquering new territory. French generals and politicians became fond of a famous saying of the Roman statesman Cato the Elder, Bellum se ipsum alet, war feeds itself. The last big reason for the Directory to adopt the offensive was philosophical. The Directors certainly weren't idealists or ideological fanatics, but they weren't stupid either. They were well aware that there was an abstract, intellectual component to this conflict. There were people all over Europe who sympathized with the aims of the revolution, and were willing to collaborate with the French to bring similar changes to their own societies. The Republicans had used these social divisions to great advantage in Holland the previous year. They hoped an aggressive strategy might tap into similar sentiments elsewhere. The militaristic ideals of the revolution still had power within the Republic as well. Despite the general cynicism of Directory France, that crusading spirit of 1792 had not totally died out. Many Frenchmen believed their country had seen the birth of a new, more advanced form of social organization. Remember, the revolutionaries had done away with the old Christian calendar. September 22, 1792, had become the first day of year one of the Republic. To the revolutionaries, this was the dawning of a new age, both literally and figuratively. Once the New Republic became embroiled in a war against the whole rest of the continent, this developed into a sense of national mission, that France's destiny was to bring the light of this new age to the rest of the world, at the point of a bayonet. By exporting the revolution abroad, the Directory might shore up its domestic support among those who still believed in that crusading national mission. The members of the Directory themselves were probably not sentimental enough to get caught up in this type of idealism, but they certainly understood its power, both as a motivator for their own people and as a tool to achieve their ambitions abroad. So, strategic, financial, and philosophical concerns pushed the Directory to pursue the offensive and try to conquer foreign territory wherever possible. That led them to endorse Napoleon's plan. Although, as you can see, the government was not as invested in his long-term success as he probably would have hoped. Obviously, the ideal outcome for the Directory was a complete triumph, but most of their goals would be met as long as Napoleon distracted the enemy and captured some loot, even if he was ultimately defeated. And so, despite the shifts in strategy, the Italian theater remained a low priority for supplies and reinforcements and would stay that way until the campaign was almost over. Napoleon would be more or less on his own, forced to make his own success with the bare minimum of support from Paris. Years of hard fighting with insufficient backing from the government had taken a terrible toll on the Army of Italy. It had been a bit rough around the edges during Napoleon's time in the Alps in 1794, but when he arrived at army headquarters in Nice on March 26th, he found a force so worn out and depleted that it was nearly incapable of operations. Bonaparte attended a welcome dinner hosted by the army's outgoing commander, General Bartolome Scherer, a man who had once fired him and who he was now replacing after criticizing to their superiors. 
Given the circumstances, you have to imagine it was pretty awkward. But Napoleon wrote a positive account of the meeting in his report to Paris. Quote, I have been particularly struck with the frankness and honesty of General Scherer. He has earned my gratitude by his loyal conduct, and with the alacrity with which he has communicated useful information. His health appears somewhat shaken. He has a great facility for speaking on moral and political matters, which might be of use to you. End quote. So, reading between the lines there, I think frankness and honesty might mean that Scherer was feeling a bit sour, and essentially told Napoleon, See, I wasn't lying when I told Paris this army is in no condition for a major offensive. Good luck. But Napoleon really did want the unvarnished truth about the state of the army. So, even if it was delivered out of spite, he was grateful to hear it. I think that little note of recommendation at the end is interesting. Etiquette demanded he be magnanimous to Scherer, but I think this is going a bit beyond perfunctory politeness. Clearly, Napoleon didn't view his little rivalry with Scherer as anything personal, just a professional disagreement between two soldiers. Now that he was out of Bonaparte's way, there was no lingering bitterness. And I think seeing the Army of Italy up close may have given Napoleon a new appreciation for Scherer's caution. In Napoleon's own words, quote, I found this army not only destitute of everything, but without discipline and in a chronic state of insubordination. End quote. Many, perhaps even a majority, of its soldiers were without uniforms or at least their worn-out rags were no longer recognizable as uniforms. Many lacked shoes and made do with painful, ungainly wooden clogs, or simply wrapped their bare feet in cloth. I can only imagine what a hardship that must have been marching through the rocky terrain of the Alps. No overcoats had been issued to the army. Not a huge problem as long as they were camped in the Riviera, but what would become of them up in the mountains? Around a thousand men were not even armed, due to a shortage of muskets. They must have looked dangerously thin. Rations were chronically low, and only arrived intermittently. It had been three months since they were issued meat, and they had gone even longer without pay, not even in the nearly worthless scrip often issued by the directory. To top it all off, the army had just endured a fever epidemic, which had killed nearly 600 and put several thousand more in the hospital. As you might imagine, morale was abysmally low. The men had become accustomed to flouting army regulations and openly defying their officers. Right-wing agitators worked relatively openly. Large royalist cells were active within several units. The army was perpetually on the brink of mutiny. Surveying his new command, Napoleon must have instantly realized that simply getting the army to a basic standard of combat readiness would be a huge task. However, it wasn't all bad news. Most of the troops were seasoned veterans. The bulk of the army was made up of the patriotic volunteers who had joined up in 1792 to defend the revolution plus the so-called Class of 1793, who had been drafted at the Declaration of Mass Conscription, 
plus a smaller corps of old soldiers from the Royal Army. That meant they were a bit older than you might expect, mostly ranging from their early 20s to early 30s. Wherever they came from, they had lived through years of brutal warfare. These were professionals, survivors, men who knew war. The officers had placed many of their worst, least motivated soldiers on leave. Other less committed men had simply deserted. So those who remained generally actually wanted to be in the service, even if they were sometimes angry about their treatment by the higher-ups. In theory, the Army of Italy was just under 100,000 men strong, a large force by 18th century standards. However, in practice, nowhere near that many men were actually available for the coming campaign. Around 36,000 were not even on active duty, over one-third of the entire force. That's an eye-popping number for a country at war. Some of those men were sick or injured, but most were on leave. It seems crazy, but as we've seen, the French government struggled to feed, equip, and pay its soldiers to even a minimum standard. And so, large numbers of men were furloughed to make the task easier. There's no point in putting men in the field if you can't even afford to arm them. Of the remaining 60,000 soldiers, around 22,000 were needed behind the lines, mostly for garrison duty. That left Napoleon with a field army of around 38,000. In the coming days, he would scrape together a few thousand more, eventually starting the campaign with around 44,000 men. Not a huge number by the standards of the day, but not insignificant either. Of course, in a modern military, it wouldn't even be big enough to qualify as an army. The basic organizational building block of any French Revolutionary Army was a unit called a demi-brigade. That's just French for half-brigade, but for whatever reason, English speakers generally leave it untranslated. Which seems odd, but I won't break precedent. The demi-brigade was an innovation of the Revolution, created by Lazare Carnot in 1793, replacing the regiment, which had been the basic unit of the old royal army. The French army of 1793 performed very unevenly. The old veteran regiments of the royal army were steady in battle, but as former soldiers of the king, their loyalties were suspect. The regiments of National Guard volunteers and fresh conscripts were much more committed to the cause, but totally inexperienced. Their revolutionary enthusiasm could easily turn to panic at the first taste of combat. Many had been rushed to the front with such little training that they struggled to execute even basic battlefield maneuvers. To solve these twin problems, Carnot disbanded the old regiments and reorganized them into demi-brigades. These two pools of soldiers would be amalgamated into mixed units, composed of one-third veterans and two-thirds new recruits. It might sound dubious, but it actually worked very well. Generally speaking, the best habits of each group rubbed off on the other. The veteran soldiers imparted their knowledge on the new men, and in turn, they picked up some of the enthusiasm and political commitment of the patriotic recruits. 
This amalgamation was a big reason the French army was able to absorb the huge influx of men in 1793 without completely losing cohesion. On paper, each demi-brigade was 2,500 men strong, plus four light cannon to provide artillery support. But this was only ever really the case in the ledgers at army headquarters. Between desertion, disease, and attrition, the average demi-brigade was closer to half that number. As for cannon, priority always went to dedicated artillery units, so many demi-brigades went without. And that's all just as well, because a unit of 2,500 infantry plus 4 cannon would have been a little bit unwieldy as a basic unit of maneuver on a battlefield. Any military buffs listening are probably asking yourselves, an infantry unit of a little over a thousand soldiers, isn't that just a regiment? Well, yes. For practical purposes, the demi-brigades of the revolutionary armies were essentially just oversized regiments. In 1803, Napoleon would simply replace the term demi-brigade with regiment. But at this point in our story, the revolutionary government liked the demi-brigade nomenclature. The colorfully named regiments of the old royal army, with their unique uniforms and strong senses of individual identity and esprit de corps, had been a big part of the military culture of the old regime. The new republican army was standardized. Each unit identified only by number and official designation. Gone were names like the Queen's Regiment, the French Guards, and the Royal Wallonian Regiment replaced by relatively sterile designations, the 32nd Line Demi-Brigade, the 11th Light Demi-Brigade, the 7th Provisional Demi-Brigade. On a practical level, this cut down on confusion and made supply and administration easier. Philosophically, it was part of the democratic and universalizing ethos of the revolution. No unit was privileged over any other. All were part of the same system. And, of course, it erased a part of that old regime military culture, which was associated with the Royalist Officer Corps, who had been so hostile to the revolution. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Of course, by 1796, that old reactionary military culture was a thing of the past. Very few conservative officers remained in France after the Revolution, and even fewer had managed to survive both the terror and years of bloody warfare. They had been replaced by a new Republican officer corps, some of these men had been commissioned in the royal army and served the king as closet liberals and reformers, like Napoleon or Carnot. Others had served in the ranks before the revolution, sergeants and corporals who had previously been held back by their lowly origins. 
There were even a few who would come out of civilian life as patriotic volunteers and discovered a talent for soldiering. The years of war had lifted them up by an almost Darwinian process. The brave, the talented, and the lucky rose through the ranks. The cowardly, incompetent, and unfortunate fell on the battlefield, or ran afoul of their superiors. Despite their unlikely origins and rapid ascent, the Republican Officer Corps of 1796 was becoming the best in Europe. A corps of hardened old survivors surrounded by energetic young men, seasoned beyond their years by the trials of war. The turmoil of the revolution had allowed a lot of talent to rise quickly to the top. The leadership of the Army of Italy was maybe the best example of this phenomenon. Its officer corps was an almost unbelievable roster of talent. Many of the names that would later be inscribed in a place of honor under the Arc de Triomphe would march into Italy with Napoleon in 1796. When Napoleon instituted the rank of Marshal of the Empire in 1804, 14 men would be promoted to this new, highest rank in the army. Six of that 14 were officers in the Army of Italy when Napoleon took command in 1796. Of course, simple proximity to Napoleon during this key moment of his career had a currency of its own. Napoleon had a special bond with the men who served in what would later come to be known as the First Italian Campaign. Anyone who could say he'd been with the Army of Italy in 1796 and 7 had a patron and benefactor for life in Napoleon. But favoritism alone can't explain the practical battlefield success enjoyed by so many veterans of the Army of Italy. Military historians love to bicker about the rankings of Napoleon's generals who's overrated, who's underrated, but their broad assessments of the officer corps of the Army of Italy are nearly unanimous. This was a unique hotbed of talent. You might compare the Army to a minor league baseball team stacked with future Hall of Famers. Sorry if that's not helpful, but baseball is the only sport I know well. For those officers who survived, Napoleon's first Italian campaign would be their ticket to wealth and glory. But when he arrived in camp on March 26, 1796, I doubt any of them would have believed it. Bonaparte had made a bad impression before he even arrived. When news of General Scherer's dismissal had reached Nice weeks earlier, it had set off a furious wave of speculation and gossip. Why had he been fired? What did it mean for the future of the army? And above all, who would replace him? On this last question, a consensus quickly formed among the officers. There could only be one man, General André Massena, that brilliant ex-smuggler who we met in episode 19, when his aggressive flanking maneuver made him the hero of the Battle of Saorgio. Massena had been with the Army of Italy continuously since the very beginning of the war, suffered through all of its hardships and defeats, and played a hand in all of its victories. In four years on the Italian front, he had distinguished himself again and again, rising from lieutenant colonel to general. Even among this group of officers that included so many talented men and big egos, everyone deferred to Messina. For years, the position of commander of the Army of Italy was a revolving door of mostly incapable, disengaged outsiders sent from Paris. 
Under each new leader, it was Messena who had taken charge, and done his best to shield the army from the consequences of incompetence and neglect. Messena had proved time and again to be a brilliant soldier. No one could deny that he had paid his dues. No one knew the army of Italy better. No one matched him in the army's esteem. To his fellow officers, it seemed inevitable that one day Paris would bow to reality and appoint the man they all knew was right for the job. With the news of Scherer's departure, they allowed themselves to believe that day was imminent. Finally, the courier arrived, and... Bonaparte? That Corsican artilleryman from Dugamier's tenure? He hadn't even spent a year with the army. What had he ever done, other than save the government's bacon in Vendémiaire? Another political general. What a shame. The way they saw it, Napoleon's appointment was one more screw-up by the politicians. The army was going to have to pay for in blood and suffering. Paris shorted their rations, paid them late, and refused to send enough equipment. Napoleon was now the latest in that list of failures. Another burden to bear. And so, no one was happy to see him when he arrived in camp on March 26th. He probably made things worse by eagerly showing everyone a portrait of his beautiful new wife, which struck the officers as silly and immature. But if he noticed their coldness, Napoleon didn't care. As always, he immediately launched into action. As Massena put it, quote, The moment he donned the general's hat, he seemed to grow two feet. He questioned us on the positions of our divisions, their equipment, and the spirit and active number of each unit. He gave us directions, and announced that the next day he would inspect every unit. End quote. One by one, Napoleon grilled the senior commanders, peppering each one with questions until they were stumped. I was terrible with the officers, Bonaparte would later reflect. That night, after his dinner with Scherer, Napoleon gathered the senior officers for a council of war. He'd spent all day listening to their reports and assessments. Now it was his turn to talk. We don't know exactly what was said, but Bonaparte must have explained both his immediate plans for rehabilitating the army and the broader strategy for invading Italy. Whatever transpired, he must have done a good job, because the officers left the meeting with their opinions of Bonaparte transformed. At least, that's the traditional narrative. I think a lot of biographers of Napoleon overestimate the impact of this first war council. Granted, the officers of the Army of Italy were disappointed that the job hadn't gone to Messina, and Napoleon's inexperience and political connections called his skills into question. However, several of the attendees had served with him in the past, or knew him personally. Those who were meeting him for the first time would have at least been aware of his reputation, which surely would have been discussed ad nauseum around camp while the army awaited his arrival. I would guess that this wasn't some virtuoso performance that instantly won over a hostile crowd, but much more likely a simple display of competence. Napoleon reminded them who he was, an energetic rising star with a serious grasp of military theory nothing like the sorry old man who had been appointed to lead the army during the terror. General Messena's demeanor probably helped as well. He had been surly with Bonaparte at first, but he cared too much about the cause and the army to keep this up for long. 
Masena quickly swallowed his pride and began to play the role of a loyal second-in-command. It was probably good for the rest of the officers to see the unofficial leader of the group deferring to their new commander. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, Napoleon's speech at the War Council may have actually worked too well. He had mollified the concern that he was another ineffectual tool of the politicians, but this was now replaced with a new worry. In its weakened state, the army of Italy might not be capable of living up to Bonaparte's grand ambitions. After the meeting, the eminently plain-spoken divisional commander, General Pierre Augereau, remarked to Messena, quote, That little bastard actually scared me, end quote. The next day, Napoleon officially inspected the troops. He addressed them in a short speech, which has since become famous. Quote, Soldiers, you are naked and underfed. The government owes you much. It can give you nothing. The patience and courage you display amid these rocks are admirable, but they procure you no glory. No fame is reflected upon you. I seek to lead you into the most fertile plains in the world. Rich provinces and great cities will be in your power. There you will find honor, glory, and riches. Soldiers of the army of Italy, will you be found lacking in courage or constancy? End quote. It's classic Napoleon, but many historians doubt its authenticity. There is no record of the exact words of this speech until decades later, when Napoleon himself wrote it down, supposedly from memory. After so many years, there's simply no way he could have remembered his exact phrasing, even on such a momentous occasion. Even if he could have, everything I know about Napoleon tells me he would have punched it up a bit to make himself sound more eloquent for posterity. That said, we do have a report Napoleon wrote to Paris that night, and he describes giving a speech that sounds very much like the one I just read, at least in tone and theme. Afterwards, he went out and mingled with the soldiers, informally, talking to them in small groups in an attempt to draw out the true state of morale. As you might imagine, he got a litany of complaints. Next, he dug into the army's records and finances. It all must have added up to a pretty dismal picture, but he didn't dwell on it. In his words, quote, The administrative situation is regrettable, but not to be despaired of. End quote. After talking to the men and seeing the books, Napoleon was convinced that the key to rebuilding the army of Italy was addressing its supply situation. 
He had arrived in Nice with a letter of credit from the directory, good for 40,000 francs. It's hard to calculate an exact conversion to modern currency, but it was a pathetic sum. If you'll recall a few episodes back, Napoleon had mailed his brother Joseph 10,000 francs as his taste of the spoils of Vendemiaire. Apparently, the national government of the largest country in Europe could only afford four times that much to finance an entire military operation. Once the invasion began, the war might feed itself, but the army would require some serious investment before Napoleon could even think about marching it into enemy territory. He would have to get creative. The first priority was food. Poor rations physically weakened the troops, ruined morale, and played right into the hands of royalist agitators. In one of his first official pronouncements as commander, Napoleon promised larger rations and the return of meat. This was greeted with enthusiasm, but delivering would take some doing. As he reviewed the army's accounts, Napoleon found telltale signs of corruption and laxness. The contractors who supplied the army had been getting away with murder. Bonaparte resolved to rectify the situation, and use it to get his men their meat. As he put it, quote, I am obliged to threaten the contractors, who have robbed much and enjoy credit, and I obtain a good deal by flattering them afterwards. The army will henceforth have good bread and meat. It has already received considerable sums in the way of arrears. End quote. The general in charge of supply was demoted. Napoleon replaced him with one of his personal aides, a man named Chauvet, who he had brought from Paris. Chauvet was ordered to make a complete overhaul of the army's systems of supply and contracting. Meanwhile, as always, Napoleon was bombarding Paris with letters, pulling every string he had in the government, attempting to get them to actually deliver the various supply shipments promised to the army. This would prove mostly fruitless, but he did manage to secure 5,000 pairs of shoes, enough that hardly any man in the army would have to enter Italy barefoot. To supplement the pittance he had received from the directory, Napoleon reached out to the French consulate in neutral Genoa, presumably through Joseph, who worked there. He asked them to secure three million francs worth of loans from Genoese banking houses on his behalf. Under Bonaparte's instructions, these three million francs were used to buy supplies and equipment. One of the biggest purchases was several thousand new uniform jackets. Napoleon's buyers got their hands on a large shipment of cheap, good-quality wool, recently imported from Britain. Yes, Napoleon launched his first conquest with an army dressed in sturdy English twill. In his instructions to his agents in Genoa, Bonaparte was careful to stress that all of this procurement was to be done quietly. He was far from the first Republican general to acquire extra supplies on the side, but strictly speaking, it was a gross violation of army regulations. The revolutionary government was very explicit on this matter. Supplies, pay, and equipment were to come from Paris, and from Paris alone. The reasoning behind this policy came from history. Remember, Europe was in a mania for all things Roman. The revolutionaries considered the old Roman Republic a model for the new French Republic. Rome was an inspiration, but also a warning. 
its republic had given away to empire, an outcome the French revolutionaries very much hoped to avoid. They knew that overmighty generals had played a major role in the downfall of the Roman Republic. Power had shifted from the civilian government to great commanders like Sulla, Caesar, Pompey, and Mark Antony, who were able to cultivate personal followings within the army. They achieved this in large part by distributing loot, land, and other forms of patronage to their troops. In time, the legions came to be more loyal to individual commanders than to the Roman state. Politics became a struggle between competing military strongmen, and the Republic died in the crossfire. And so, learning from the classical example, revolutionary French governments created strict regulations aimed at preventing generals from creating Roman-style patronage relationships. Armies in the field were free to take what they needed for immediate sustenance, but any surplus plunder had to be returned to Paris. Under no circumstances was anything ever to be distributed among the men outside of the normal provisioning of rations and resupply. No sharing of loot as a victory bonus. No disbursement of salaries beyond the payroll that arrived from Paris. And no supply procurement with outside funds like Napoleon was doing in Genoa. But human nature being what it is, no matter how strongly worded the regulations, Republican officers in the field inevitably succumbed to temptation. Paris routinely fell short in paying and supplying its armies. So what was the harm in splashing around a little captured gold to lift the men's spirits, or cutting a side deal to make sure the army had basic necessities? The institution of the representatives on mission had been created in part to look out for this kind of thing, but they tended to turn a blind eye. As we've discussed, representatives on mission often formed partnerships with the generals they were supposed to be monitoring, like the alliance between Napoleon and Bara. Accompanying the armies out in the field, the representatives on mission could often see the need for these types of illegal disbursements just as plainly as the generals. And of course, they were often able to take a cut for themselves if they played ball. In the first Italian campaign, Napoleon had even more leeway in this area than most, because the representative on mission overseeing supply and procurement for the Army of Italy was none other than our old friend, Antoine Christophe Salicetti, Napoleon's oldest patron. The relationship between Napoleon and Salicetti had cooled slightly since the good old days. Napoleon was still sore over his arrest after Thermidor, and Salicetti was growing wary now that his young client had found other, more powerful benefactors. But there was no question that they would watch each other's backs. Napoleon worked day and night to prepare the army for invasion. Quite literally, he became notorious for sending aides out to pull some hapless officer out of bed in the middle of the night to ask some esoteric question. The sleepy pace of camp life picked up as the summer campaign season neared. Drill increased. Horses, mules, and wagons were assembled, and the cavalry returned from its winter grazing pastures. Morale improved, thanks in no small measure to the new shoes, uniforms, and increased rations. Perhaps the men were also happy to finally have something to do after the boring, languid months cooped up in winter camp. 
Napoleon seized the opportunity to crack down on subversion and insubordination. Two officers were court-martialed for the crime of shouting out the old pre-revolutionary war cry of Long Live the King. An entire battalion was punished after some of its members were overheard singing a royalist marching song. Another battalion was disbanded entirely after refusing a direct order. I suspect Napoleon was looking for cases to make into examples. I'm sure he wanted to address the discipline problem before he marched into Italy. Whether premeditated or not, his point was made. The Army of Italy would never be the most disciplined force in the history of warfare, but now they knew better than to push their luck with General Bonaparte. On April 1st, after five days of furious preparation, Napoleon considered the army ready. The next day, the Army of Italy struck camp and marched towards the town of Albenga, about 100 kilometers, or 62 miles, down the Mediterranean coast, not far from Genoa. Now, this wasn't the beginning of the invasion. Napoleon picked Albenga as his headquarters and staging area for the first phase of the offensive. He was just edging a little closer to his objective before he made his final preparations. At this key moment, he received some sad personal news. Chauvet, that aide who had been assigned to handle the supply situation, had suddenly died after a short illness. Chauvet was more than just a subordinate. Napoleon considered him a personal friend. Bonaparte was not a person who formed close relationships easily, so he cherished his few confidants. Amazingly, despite the war and the revolution, Napoleon hadn't lost someone really close to him since his father's death eleven years earlier. He gave his friend a brief eulogy in his official report, quote, Chauvet's death is a real loss to the army. He was active and enterprising. The army sheds a tear for his memory, end quote. So, relatively restrained and soldierly, except for maybe at the end there. But the day before, he had written to Josephine, and in that letter you can clearly see he was much more deeply wounded by his friend's death than he let on. Quote, They have just brought me a letter. It is a sad one. My mind is distressed. It is the death of Chauvet. My love, I need consolation. It is by writing to you, to you alone, the thought of whom can so influence my moral being, to whom I must pour out my troubles. What is the future? What is the past? What are we ourselves? What ether surrounds us and hides us from the very things that it most behooves us to know? We are born, we live, we die, in the midst of marvels. Is it surprising that priests, astrologers, and charlatans have profited by this propensity, by this strange circumstance, to exploit our ideas and direct them to their own advantage? Chauvet is dead. We were attached. He has rendered essential service to the fatherland. His last words were that he was coming to join me. Yes, I see his ghost. It hovers everywhere, whistles in the air. His soul is in the clouds. He will watch over my destiny, but, fool that I am, I shed tears for our friendship. End quote. As you can see, Napoleon was so shaken that he returned to that morbid, sentimental style of writing that he used in his unhappy teenage years. 
But there was no time now to wallow in this existential funk, because Napoleon's invasion plan was in danger of being ruined before it even began. His Austrian counterpart, General Johann Beaulieu, wasn't a bad commander, but he had a reputation for sluggishness. Typically, Beaulieu only took action after careful deliberation, and then executed his maneuvers with the same painstaking caution. Napoleon had taken this tendency into account when formulating his plans. However, almost as soon as he learned of Napoleon's march on Albenga, Beaulieu sprung into action with uncharacteristic speed and decisiveness. The Austrians broke their winter camp and alerted their Piedmontese allies to be ready. Beaulieu began concentrating his forces and sent detachments towards Albenga to learn more about the disposition and intentions of the Republican forces. Napoleon had not planned for this. The whole concept of his strategy depended on the French taking the initiative, forcing the coalition to react to their movements, not the other way around. But all was not yet lost. Beaulieu's forces were scattered all over northwestern Italy. The Austrian advance guard was already headed towards Albenga, but it would be days before they could concentrate the main body of their army, and the Piedmontese had barely broken camp. There was still time for the French to take the offensive and seize the initiative, but only just, only if they moved immediately. Napoleon was not finished with his preparations. The army was not ready. The only other option was to scrap the plan he had been working on for over a year. And so, Napoleon assembled his generals and informed them that the timetable had just moved up. On April 6, 1796, Napoleon launched his long-awaited offensive. The first Italian campaign had begun. In his report back to Paris, Napoleon wrote, quote, The enemy was alarmed when I had counted on catching him napping. This will cost us many more men. The army is still in a terrible state of destitution. I have still great obstacles to surmount, but they are surmountable. Distress has authorized insubordination, and without discipline, victory is out of the question. I hope all this will be changed in the course of a few days. Signed, Bonaparte. End quote. Even in that official tone, you can detect his nervousness. He's already apologizing and making excuses. He's still worried that the army is not up to the task, and not without good reason. These troops were on the verge of mutiny barely a week before. There was still one demi-brigade without muskets. I can only imagine Napoleon's frustration. Since he was a boy, he had imagined himself at the head of an army, fighting in a righteous cause. Now it was finally happening, and things were already going wrong. He had spent over a year honing this particular plan, trying to think through all the possible outcomes and contingencies, but he had somehow missed the one that actually presented itself when the day came. Of course, nothing has ever gone strictly to plan. I don't think that principle ever dawned on Napoleon until he was actually in a position of leadership. He was by nature too scrupulous to reckon with the natural entropy of any human endeavor. 
Despite his misgivings, in the coming weeks, the army would outperform his wildest expectations, and Napoleon's fear of improvisation would become a thing of the past. That's all for now. Next time, we'll delve into the First Italian Campaign, and learn more about this unique, surprising army that would prosecute it. Until then, thanks for listening. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.